Hi there, City Champion Podcast listeners. It's good to be back with y'all after a far too long five-month hiatus. I miss you guys. The world's changed since we last spoke. There's no other way to put it. One of the rules when I started this podcast was to always record my conversations in person. I think we can all agree, after months of social distancing and Zoom calls, talking to someone in person is just simply better in every facet. So, with the social acceptability of face-to-face meetings starting to slowly rebound, it was a perfect time to get the show back up and running. And, more importantly, with the killing of George Floyd in the U.S. and subsequent Black Lives Matter protests around the world, I couldn't think of a better person to give us a City of Champions spin on these global issues than Edmonton Chief of Police Dale McPhee. Chief McPhee took over the top cop job in Edmonton back in February of 2019. He spent 26 years as a police officer in Prince Albert and the most recent nine years as their chief of police. He's also spent six years as the Deputy Minister of Corrections and Policing in the Ministry of Justice for the Saskatchewan government. From 2011 to 2014, he served as the president and past president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. He has previously held the positions of president of the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police, president of Saskatchewan Federation of Police Officers, and director of the Canadian Police Association. In my conversation with Chief McPhee, we talked about the killing of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, Edmonton's vulnerable population, social work in the city, data analysis, leadership and culture, plus so, so much more. Uh, His experience, his expertise, his ancillary training give him a great perspective to discuss all these issues in a dispassionate and level-headed way, most importantly. So I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Edmonton Chief of Police, Dale McPhee. Chief McPhee, thank you uh, for joining me. Oh, thanks, Shane. Uh, looking forward to it. It's um, it's a weird time with this pandemic. Oh, yeah, to say the least, that's absolutely for sure. I mean, I walked in the building. We're here at EPS headquarters. I was planning to adhere to all the COVID, you know, regulations, but I thought, you know what? Maybe walking into EPS headquarters with mask, glove, and a backpack on not <laughs> not the smart not the smartest idea. Um, but you know what? It's it's not just a weird time, it's also a really important time. 100%, yeah, it's it, it's a time where, you know, uh, the world's in a bit of turmoil right now, and we're seeing it in many fronts uh, as you're, we're watching it unfold. Obviously, COVID is the start of it, and, you know, then we had what happened in Minneapolis, the Black Lives Movement, and, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I think, uh, you know, it's it's a time of change, and it's, uh, it's a time for leadership more uh, first and foremost, so I think... Uh, as much as it's troubling, uh, there's some real opportunities that are come out of this, and it's going to be pretty critical that uh, leadership for various sectors grab onto this and you know help change the uh, the way the world is uh, delivered in services, and, and 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 more importantly, just bring some calm to people in a time where you know there's a lot of stress in the environment. Absolutely, you're you're totally right. I mean, I see a lot of stress, a lot of anger, frustration, desperation. People are feeling right now. And, you know, I thought that you'd be a perfect person to talk to, given your 30-plus years of experience in policing, your your knowledge, your expertise, and, and what I assume is probably your fairly dispassionate look on this thing, the ability to take the emotion out of some of these issues, because, <clears throat> you know, people don't make good decisions when they're emotional. No, and, you know, and you make a really good point there, and that's exactly what we try to do. You know, uh, I think it's a time for patience, because, as you said, uh, 
uh, when people are emotional, they do some things that maybe they wouldn't have done normally. Um, it, it leads to some breakdowns. It leads to, from a policing perspective, so certain types of increased calls for service. You're going to see your domestic violence. We're seeing, you know, potential suicides and things like that go up, and, and those are troubling, right? That means that uh, people are struggling, and uh, uh, we need to, at that point in time, try to bring some calm to the, to the world and calm to our communities and uh, and just some reassurance to people. And, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, in, in, in my uh, view and through some of my experience, some of that comes with patience, some of that comes with understanding, and a lot of that comes with the fact that we, you know, we're given a gift with uh, two ears and one mouth, and sometimes it's uh, listening more than we're talking. So I think it all kind of goes hand in hand. Perfectly. Uh, totally agree. And, you know, you've just mentioned a ton of things that I want to touch on. Um, but I want to first start with a quote that, that I read when doing the research for this, and it really stuck out to me. You said, uh, you said that you strongly believe that the EPS is only going to be as effective as its relationships with its community. And that sort of as a preface, I want to kind of give that as an example to people, the type of person you are and your, your philosophy in a sentence. Um, but I also want to start at the beginning. What got you into policing in the first place? Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I was uh, uh, always intrigued in the profession. Uh, I had some, uh, you know, distant family members that, that were police officers. But what I really seen it was it's something you do different every day. <clears throat> no two days are the same. I'm uh, Sometimes I'm a little bit of a squirrel and uh, like to do multiple things at the same time. And uh, I just thought it was also a way to stay in connection with people, which is something I've always enjoyed. And then, uh, you know, I uh, uh, grew up in a hockey environment, a team environment. Again, it's another team uh, environment. I played a lot of sports as a kid and, uh, you know, had a lot of friends uh, uh, that evolved uh, with those relationships. And, uh, you know, uh, looking at policing, it is very much a, a team orientated uh, uh, a job. Uh, you know, where the, as I always use the analogy when I coached, whether it's at the midget or the junior level or uh, high level soccer, it's uh, uh, the crest on the front is more important than the name on the back. And I'm sure you've heard that a few times over, <laughs> Once your, or twice, over, yeah. over your lifetime. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if you look at successful teams, that's they, they have it figured out, right? It's not about individual credit. It's about how you can collectively come together to make the sum of the parts better than the individual parts. Now, when you started, you went straight into frontline policing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what what about the job kind of shocked you? What didn't surprise you? Sort of what were the expectations <coughs> met and not met? Well, you know, uh, I, I think what I uh, probably underestimated was just how busy it was on the front line. Uh, the thing about policing is uh, not not too many people call you when they're having a good day. <laughs> and I think if you start from that point, you're generally going to somebody in crisis, uh, mm -hmm. you know, 90, 90 plus percent of the time. And, uh, you know, your job is to make split, uh, split second decisions. You're trying to make the right decisions. And, you know, you learn obviously pretty quick on your feet. You have the training in relation to help you deal with it. Of course, you have your basic training that uh, keeps you in, your, in, the, in the community safe, but then you you, you learn quickly that uh, you know true police work is uh, is the ability to use your voice uh, and some of those de-escalation methods uh, early on, and uh, those that are most effective building relationships with the communities are ones that have uh, evolved those skills. And uh, you know, it's as somebody it, it's a little bit of a thing. A lot of people have asked me this lately. Is you know, it's like the evolution of anything else. Uh, you know, uh, months ago, uh, hockey coaches were on fire, and people were asking me that question. And mm -hmm. I mean. There's people and good coaches that have evolved, and there's some that haven't. And the ones that have evolved have learned to adapt to 
what's new in the environment. And I think that's where probably most of the opportunities are in government, in you know agencies like police services, is that evolution. Uh, uh, a lot of people are looking for a revolution, but really uh, the gains are made when you actually do the evolution process and you do it with the community and get underneath the community. Yeah, I mean, to me, in my perspective, which granted isn't all that exposed of a perspective compared to someone like yourself, but it seems like we're in such a good place globally in terms of at least Canada, a little bit less the U.S., but like we're not worrying about we're not worrying about uh, you know where we're going to get our next meal. We're not worried about <coughs> getting bombed. We're not getting you know worried about these like real survival things. It seems like now people are turning the focus onto these kind of lower on the hierarchy of Maslow's. You know, needs. No, I, yeah, and and you and you look at that, and you and you uh, start to look at that, and <clears throat> you talk about marginalization. You talked about, you know, uh, systemic racism is a big conversation now. You talk about some of these things. These things have existed way before anybody on Earth today existed, uh, or sorry, alive today existed. And bottom line with that is is we've never really looked at the system in its entirety we've always tried to fix components of the system we've never changed the structure we always focus on culture we talk about you know uh, culture eat strategy for breakfast we change our strategies but nobody's actually looked at the system and say you know what really are we really trying to do the same thing across the system for people and, mm-hmm. and you know the prime example is that is when you get into some of the communities and Edmonton's an example of that we have a homeless strategy, a housing strategy, a poverty strategy, a mental health strategy, an addiction strategy, an FASD strategy. I could probably go on for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's the same people in most strategy. Mm-hmm. The large part of the same people, and we've never changed the structure to deal with that. So when you look at that as a, as a systems approach, we're probably on the most unique opportunity that we've ever been on to get better outcomes for people and save a boatload of money, which both are important right mm-hmm. now. So when you talk about a, a problem like homelessness, for example, how much of the problem is the individuals involved in that and how much of the problem is the public's perception and giving you resistance on solving those issues? Well, it, it, those two are very much linked. I mean, <clears throat> if you look at it, uh, if you give a person a house, are they going to be okay? Probably not. There's probably some kind of form of trauma. Mm-hmm. The housing's going to help. There's, there's, there's no question it doesn't. But, you know, if you look at the things, and, and policing's the, the one entity that you can actually reverse engineer and figure out what are the things you can change. So if you look at calls for service in policing, and let's say that we really went after and, uh, and looked at some of the things that are disproportionately driving calls for service. Well, you would automatically get the trauma, trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, police services now are starting to realize trauma-informed, but trauma-informed isn't just for policing. I mean, it's the same as social services, same as health, same as education. So if you look at trauma, uh, you look at mental health and you look at addictions highly, there's not very many people that uh, we arrest that, that aren't some type of an addictions in mm-hmm. relation to on, on the serious crime, especially, you know, uh, there's some there's some different things in relation to, I should say on, on, the, on the marginalized community, it's mostly grounded in there. There's high rates of domestic violence. Again, it's, a, you know, it's, it's the culture piece and lack of employment as we see as mm-hmm. a thing. So when the economy downturns, mm-hmm policing picks up right mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I think there's a relationship that really nobody's connected the dots education is the difference maker mm-hmm. if you get marginalized uh, students to, and this is the research that we did in my last job as a deputy minister when you get people to graduate and go through school and go on to post-secondary uh, the rates of going into the justice system between marginalized uh, students or marginalized kids and non-marginalized goes to zero mm-hmm. like zero a hundred percent so 
I mean, we know the past, but we still try to take the past in chunks, and we all of a sudden it's kind of like playing the game of risk. We got an army in every country, and we wonder why we're first out of the game. But it's, you know. <laughs> take Australia. Yeah. Always take Australia. I haven't played in a while. That's your, but that, that's your home fort. I, re- I remember that's that. That's strong strategy. Strong strategy, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, what you said about, like, put someone in a home, and, and that's not necessarily going to solve the problem. It reminds me of that Jamie Foxx movie. I think it's called The Soloist. I don't yeah. know if you saw it, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like a really talented guy. He gets thrown in the house, and all of a sudden he freaks out because it's just like that's not – that's not the life they've grown accustomed to. We just like imprint our sort of values of what's important right. and what we're looking for on these. Well, how could these people also not want nice homes with a well manicured front yard? It's because they probably never known that. They probably don't give a shit about it, right? right? So, and and that's that's the point, right? There's no one particular aspect that you can put one umbrella or one blanket and say it's going to work for everybody because it truly doesn't. Mm-hmm. If we haven't figured that out now, we got a lot more work to do. But I, I think for the most part, now that's not saying that with things like the city of Edmonton are doing, for instance, housing first strategy, that's found, that's sound fundamentally, mm-hmm. but you need to have the other components actually working with it. And if mm-hmm. they're working in opposition to it, it actually, you know, it drastically reduces your outcomes and your results. Yeah. Well, so how do you, how do you shift public opinion on that? And I'll give you an example. So yeah. I know a young couple in town, they got recently got a flyer in the mail and it said something about um, sustainable development housing, or I forget the exact terminology, but basically like, like, like low income housing. And their kind of conversation around it was, um, you know, how do we how do we say we don't want this? It wasn't like, oh, we should learn more about whether this is yeah. good or, or not. It's just sort of like, well, we don't want it to be applicable to us. Yeah. Um, and you know, as someone who you know went through university and studied psychology and, and mental illness, it's like I understand that it's far more complicated than most people realize, right? Well, and and I mean, if you study it even a little bit further than that, it's kind of the the NIMBY effect, right? Not in my backyard. Yeah. And, and if, yeah. if you if you think about that though, and you boil that down into, it all comes under one taxpayer's pocket, and everybody has a stake in this. We're all taxpayers, and mm-hmm. and the reality is now, if you actually get better outcomes for people, and get a better you know uh, spend of your money uh, of your of your tax resources, you actually solve both problems. Mm-hmm. So, it's it it's really. It's not a, a, a single approach. I mean, there's lots of these things going on. There, there are lots of disconnected. I mean, I was pretty fortunate in my last job as uh, transformational change in the government to actually study with the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people would absolutely be shocked if they knew how much money is actually going into the, the social system. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I think back then, uh, it was six ministries spend 80 to 89% of all expenditures in all ministries. And they're all in the human services, right? Mm-hmm. So it's your health, your education, social service, your justice, advanced education, your employment, army, your economy, really. But the linkages and the things that are still causing problems have existed for many years, and yet we've never done it. Everybody says, well, you know, we need to share information better. Well, there's been multiple death inquests and inquiries and everything else, and yet we haven't implemented anything. We just keep talking about form another committee, and we go through the same process and come up with the same outcomes, which we've known. And in the business environment, which you're very familiar with, is sometimes you just got to do R&D and you got to take some risk mm-hmm. because the risk of failure is what you have. It, so this really isn't risk. So it, you've got to make it apply to people in context they understand. Everybody understands finances. Everybody understands that the fact that we need better outcomes and then you got to look at it from a city perspective is if you don't tackle this and you get a bad reputation in your city who's going to want to come to your city mm-hmm. who's going to want to invest in your city right these things are so linked but yet we've always had conversations that focus on let's just create more revenue generate more revenue 
yet uh, at times like this, the expenditures are growing four, five, seven, ten times faster than the revenues. Mm -hmm. So they're always going to be in a deficit position. Mm -hmm. Where if you're in a business, you're running it on net bottom line. So, I mean, I always ask the equation when I try to explain it to somebody, why should you care? Would you rather run a $500 million business that loses $100 million, or would you rather uh, run a $5 million business that makes a million dollars right. and gives better outcomes? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's, that's what we miss is we, we try to look globally and fix it like it's everything can be changed overnight and rather than take a chunk size, let's say 20% that we can take out of the system and then work on the next 10%. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of individuals uh, in the city of Edmonton and certainly in Canada, and I've been in every province and pretty much every country speaking on some of this stuff, is there's a huge opportunity to start focusing on outcomes versus outputs. Mm -hmm. All that's, that I've seen measured and been around for a long time for the most part is what we put into a system and nobody measures what gets out. We know how many arrests we need. We know how many people we take in, children that go into in custody. We know how many checks we issue. We know how many uh, uh, people come into the mental health system, how many hospital room visits, how many jail visits we have. Nobody's really measuring how many we've actually got out and sustainable and got them into independence or got a job and, and, and done that. Mm -hmm. In relation to that, they're all disconnected. So big opportunities to your point, but it's, it, it's back to the Canadian discussion where we started there. It's, Somebody's got to lead this, and I, I think uh, Canada's in a prime spot to lead it because we don't have the severity of the issues that they have elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But let's let's face it, we have issues, and if we just turn a blind eye and turn a back, and or we, you know, let the social media agenda dictate the outcomes, we're probably going to end up in a worse place than we when we started. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, one of the things I wanted to touch on with you was sort of what are the significant changes in policing philosophy that you've seen from when you started to now, at least the most obvious ones? What did we do now that we definitely don't even look at? Um, and what are the ones that we do now that you think aren't going to last in the future? Yeah, like, I mean, I think all of the, the review, the practices, the training and the recruiting and the hiring that we do now is far more advanced. Like, I mean, <coughs> I look at our last recruiting or probably two recruit classes again, we had you know, uh, eight different languages uh, spoken. We had people with masters, doctorates, graduate degrees, real real life experience. You know, had some time in the job, uh, and you know, very diverse. I think it was fifty seven percent represented from under uh, from the minority uh, based hires. I think we're seeing a real shift in recruiting, and I think it's a, it's a good thing. That's going to take time to mm -hmm. absorb and through attrition to to build out. It's not uh, the old thing where, you know, you just sign up for the job and uh, you can uh, back to the days where you, if you played hockey or you played a sport, you know, you're a team player. Mm -hmm. It's more sophisticated that way, so I see that as a real positive change. I think the biggest game changer uh, that I see, not just in policing going into the future, uh, and it's through all human services, is, is the data perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, um, a good friend of mine, Sheldon Kennedy, who you probably know as well, is uh, to know better is to do better. That was his language. And, and, and we have the data now to know what works and what doesn't work. And we got to get out of things that, yeah, that, that, that don't work. And we got to re-up the ante and, and, and double down on the things that do work and that are proven to work. And then the other thing is, is <coughs> one of the bigger changes that we're seeing across the world right now is the diversity of our communities. Mm -hmm. Edmonton is a multicultural community. It has <coughs> it changed drastically. When I lived in St. Albert as a kid uh, to now, it, it's changed uh, 
uh, leaps and bounds. And, and I think that diversity is our strength, but I don't think we spend enough time getting under the communities to leverage that expertise. And from mm -hmm. a policing perspective, we always come in on top of the community. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's no different in the justice system is uh, we wait for somebody to do something bad and then we tell them how to fix them when we actually know they're headed in that direction. Why don't we spend some time to keep them from getting into the system? So we've just made a big change in our police service to, to double down on that, created a new bureau uh, to work with our partners, our community partners, uh, other agencies to say, you know what, uh, success for us should be working our way out of a job. And I think that's changed as well. Mm -hmm. So two questions, one fun and then one serious one. Were you a Saint uh, Saint Albert Saint? Played there for a little <laughs> half a year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah with uh, an alumni, were you around the same time as Fierzy? No, no, it was after. after. It was after. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, uh, Messi's uh, dad, Doug, was uh, was the coach back then. And, uh, so yeah, it goes back a little ways. Yeah, nice. for sure. Yeah. yeah, they got the good. I saw the mural of Fierzy up on the wall. We said we got to lobby them to get a mural of you up there. Now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so just back to the, what you mentioned about diversity on the force, and I know when you were in Prince Albert, I, at least I read that you had one of the most diverse forces in Canada in that, in that particular branch. Um, what, what's the focus on people's cultural or, or racial background when you're in an environment that that's diverse? Does, you know, does it become a topic of day-to-day -day conversation or does race really become as interesting a fact as, say, hair color is? Well, it, it's interesting because, <coughs> you know, I was told early on that we need a representative workforce, right? So <coughs> uh, Prince Albert High First Nations content, uh, you know, me being Métis as well, um, you know, how do we get it to we represent the, the population? And, and it was a little over 30% at the time. and we actually recruited and went up to 40%. And what we did is we sat down with uh, uh, a group of elders. We had Grand Chief at that time, was a guy by the name of Gary Morasti. And we, we made, a, made a deal with them to how we could actually, you know, get an elder endorsement. How could we get people? We hired additional strength. And then through attrition, when people retired, we brought them in. And then, you know, you even increased your, your multiplication factor went up. So we got up to 40%. But the reality is, is it didn't change much. Mm. You know, we were reflective for sure, but then it was people were calling them apples and they had different names, you know, you're policing your own and <coughs> it goes backwards. So <coughs> it really taught me that first and foremost, it's important to have diversity, but it's mm. also more important to understand the culture and the diversity. And what I think if I could change, if somebody asked me if I was king for a day, what, what would you do is, is we got to stop identifying problems by race mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter. And I've been in Mexico, spoke at the World Health Conversation, you know, a large Hispanic population in Toronto, a black population in Prince Albert, First Nations population. Here's got, you know, multi dimension uh, aspects of population. It, it's it's the, the risk factors that create the risk. We know what they are. We just talked about them earlier. It's, you know, it's the poverty, it's the mental health, it's the. If they're overrepresented in the risk factors, that's actually overrepresented in our minority communities, in mm -hmm. our marginalized communities, and it's for the same reasons. But yet we identify the problem like that rather than say that problem exists in all cultures. Mm -hmm. It's very much the same. Where race really comes into back and culture comes into it, how do we implement and go into communities to drive change? Mm -hmm. That's a different than identifying the problem. Because I think we started as a fiscal deficit when we identify the problem by race, but I think it, we start as a as a real positive when we actually look at the race as part of the implementation and, and how do we use the culture to drive the change. Mm -hmm. 
that's flipping its way in its head and that's what we want to do yeah, at Edmonton Police Service as well. Yeah, I mean, like when you look at two racial groups, to me it's never made sense to identify problems and people by the racial groups because if you look at two racial groups, there's far more overlap of the similarities between the groups than there is differences within those particular groups. So by focusing on someone's race, you're saying we hardly line up at all. None of our experiences are shared. And I mean, you know, you talk about different experiences, like race is just one sub factor on thousands of sub factors on how you were raised. What's your socioeconomic status? Did you grow up in a single parent household? You know, um, were, you know, were you exposed to violence as a kid? Those are all really damaging experiences as well. So like, you know, I feel like we should be focusing on the individuals as individuals. I understand it. And, 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 and to reverse that and back to the outputs and the outcomes pieces, we always identify it. Let's just use First Nations because that's one that we, you know, it's been studied a lot in, in Canada, but we, we identify it by First Nations and let's say it's 50% in whatever they think you're doing. If you did it by socioeconomic, it would be close to 100. Mm -hmm. You know, that, but we don't do it by those type of factors. We, we'd go to the race piece and, mm -hmm. you know, there's reasons and a lot of that's history. Mm -hmm. Some of that is through system. We talk about systemic racism and systems. That's been generated from there too. But if we're really going to change something, then we got to try to measure it differently and we got to actually measure success, not continue to do the same things and, and uh, you know, and be surprised when when really we haven't moved the needle. So I think, uh, you know, it all boils down to the opportunity. So this is this is the time for change and the time for leadership. And, you know, people uh, want it, they're demanding it. You know, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of them are mad and, and rightfully so, some should be mad. But at the same time, back to your initial point is, you don't make the right change when you're mad, you make the right change when you use uh, that uh, crisis or that situation to drive meaningful change and mm -hmm. that takes uh, working with the community the people to bring calm to the situation and say we will all start the starting point is we don't agree with where we're at and mm -hmm. here's where we want to get to but we got to be got to be prepared to fail a little bit yeah absolutely so uh, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the not so much the event that kind of kicked off the Black Lives Matter um, uh, topic being kind of widespread, yeah. but specifically the protests here in Edmonton on, on June 5th. I mean, from what I can tell, it was virtually fully without incident. I think there was one arrest for a smash cruiser window. To yeah, somebody threw a pole through a window. One of our police officers got punched. There was, you know, but for the for 15,000 people, um, you know, our folks, I, I did an admiral job. I thought they did a great job. We do a lot of prep work into that we 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 don't use the same thing and you hear a lot of this militarization comparing us to the u.s well i think you've seen a lot of videos the u.s are going out with shields they're going tanks. out with sticks and tanks yeah <laughs> we went out with bicycles yeah and, and we do have armored carriers mm -hmm. or an armored carrier but that's for a specific purpose i right. mean three years ago we had a terrorist attack here Five years ago, we had an officer killed here, and we had to use that uh, piece of equipment to extract bodies for safe, uh, you know, for for our officers and for the community. So we don't do that to exercise a use of force. We had bicycles, <laughs> and people were calling for demilitarization. And you know what I mean? You know, I, I, the other thing is, in coming from the culture, we got to we got to smile a bit about it. It's not funny, but. We got to look at it on its merit. I mean, you know, what are we going to do? Take away their bicycles? I mean, at the end of the day, that's not the point. The point is to work with the community, give them the right to peacefully protest, which is a, a part of their uh, 
uh, legal rights or, uh, and give them the ability to, to express. Mm -hmm. And we do that with all groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've gotten quite good at it. Uh, you know, touch wood. Uh, we haven't had a lot of incidents in our protests, mm -hmm. and it's because of the prep work and, and, and the degree of professionalism our people put into them. And it's also uh, largely because, you know, a lot of the organizers of these protests are really good people that want to cooperate. Right. It's when people come from the outside or don't understand, they're just there to agitate. There's agitators, but you know, when they cross lines, we have a mechanism and we'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not going to back away from that. And people need to understand that. Yeah. You know, if you're going to put business owners or other people in harm's way or put a police officer in harm's way, then we're going to deal with that accordingly. Mm -hmm. But you're going to give every right to protest, uh, you know, uh, as long as you uh, keep it safe uh, and safe for others. Well, in the U.S., you saw the exact paradoxical police reaction that you'd expect, right? You see these videos of police attacking relatively peaceful protesters, yet then when the rioting and the looting started happening, you saw them kind of back away and let that happen. It's like, guys, you've got this Correct. flip the wrong it, way it, on its head. There, that, and that's, in a large part, what you just described there and having traveled across the world is some of the difference between the U.S. and the Canadian mm -hmm. models. I want and to ask it, you about that. It, it's not blaming anyone. They have the way that they develop, mm -hmm. and we evolved in a different way, and we're different than the U.S., but that's exactly the point we need to remove people when they're destroying because I mean let's face it you're destroying somebody's business or somebody's livelihood you've crossed too many lines mm -hmm. regardless of what your beliefs are absolutely you've crossed the line you don't get to just like break the law because you're mad right right <laughs> so so I mean and that's the fundamental difference and you've caught it there uh, and, and articulated very well and uh, and it's something I think for for the most part most Canadian police services done it quite well I mean there's been some failures for sure but uh, all of these things we debrief all mm -hmm. these things we're looking at how do we get better and and that's another thing that we do on a, on a regular basis yeah do you think part of the reason that the Canadians are relatively more kind of subdued than the US could kind of go back into our history of becoming a country fight, fighting no civil war essentially we we had a re, re, uh, relatively like peaceful coming into existence we had massive borders all around this giant land space that like we just happened to be protected by the U.S. and Britain. Like it, we didn't really have a violent coming into, you know, other than obviously what happened with the First Nations. Yeah, no, and I think that there's there's always things that you can learn from your past, and I think there's some other lessons in relation to that too. Is I mean, it's what you're exposed to and what you have. Like I mean, you know, uh, if you if you travel to the U.S. and you travel to some states and uh, more more than others, but you know more access to firearms. Some will argue that's the right to defend versus, well, traditionally, you know, you're hoping that you never have to use those, right? There's yeah. for a reason, because we've, we've got another side of the crime here that are real bad people. And, and quite frankly, they need to go to jail. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean they can't rehabilitate in jail, but when you choose, you know, I think we were up to 65 shootings right now this year. I mean- Just in Edmonton? Not, just in Edmonton. Yeah. I mean, that's not safe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're firing a firearm in a city environment. Mm -hmm. You know, sure, you're mad at somebody else, and some of it's organized amongst, let's say, gangs or, or whatever it is, but there's an off chance that you're, one of those bullets are going to hit somebody else, and they have in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So you got to deal with that differently. So I think the evolutions uh, in, in relation to what they're also exposed to in the U.S. in some cases are much more extreme than what we are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what lessons have you taken away since the the killing of George Floyd? 
Well, I mean, let's start with that. I mean, I mean, I don't think there's too many people in Canada or any part of the world that watch that that weren't sick to their stomach. I don't think I've seen one person say it was justified yeah, yeah, in no. everything. And like, but, that should be where we should focus, correct. right? We all agree on at least that. And, right? he, and, and they're going to court and they're charged. Yeah. And the reality is, is the justice system will deal their part in relation to doing that. But to say that happens everywhere and every time there's a police misconduct file that it's it's the same is fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that said, is I think for from an Alberta perspective, we've seen some things that we agree with: independent oversights of police investigations, police complaints. Mm-hmm. Those are a good thing, uh, you know, and some steps that we can do in relation to building community uh, in in underneath communities. We've already started that, uh, and we'll continue to do that because you don't build the relationships at the worst times you hope that you have those relationships built to get you through the worst times. Right. You weather the storm and then you go towards building. Correct. Yeah. So, so, so right now we're, we're, we reached out and you know what, and honestly we've had a lot of minority groups and minority leaders reach out to us and, and a lot of our not-for-profits reach out, you know, how can we help? And, and, and we're already doing that. So we're going to come out of this stronger. We always do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it, 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 in a large part is, I think people should realize that when you're dealing with people not at their best behavior all the time and or if you know a police officer is not at their best behavior we have mechanisms of dealing with that we take it serious we always do that's my responsibility on the second part of it there are going to be confrontations Mm -hmm. that's that's not like you're going to see somebody you want to see every day yeah we're we're generally (laughs) we're generally called and people aren't opening the door lots of times yeah you know a lot of people are calling us for help, but mm-hmm. on the other side, there's usually somebody on the other side of that that's causing the problem that isn't going to be happy with their presence. So there's always going to be that conflict. What I think we can do, though, is look at how we reduce the conflict. And really what we're seeing here is something that I think I've been privileged to work on for probably the last 12 years is we have to deal with our vulnerable population and the risk factors exposed to our vulnerable population differently mm-hmm. and for several reasons. They're not going to be fixed by a justice system, nor will they ever be fixed by the justice system. Matter of fact, some cases it can give you examples that makes it worse. But the second part of that is, is it's extremely costly and it's bad outcomes, most importantly, for mm-hmm. people and it's not making it any better. So we have to find out what type of resources, what type of money is going into the system. And if you were to design it over, how would you design it today? not by moving money around not by you know saying oh we're going to send a social worker to this we're going to send a police officer to this that's never worked it hasn't worked in 20 years Mm -hmm. won't work in the next 20 but it will work if we start to focus on uh, putting the the right team together back to that whole sports analysis breaking out the work and actually doing a lot of work prep work on the initial call for service to see if what type of response does it actually need? Mm-hmm. Can some of this be resolved on a phone? Can some of this be resolved uh, perhaps uh, through a conversation? Uh, I think there's a lot more we can do. And these aren't the emergency calls. Those are always going to be there. And, right. and, and, and to, to treat, uh, let's say, well, let's go a little bit step deep uh, further. 50% of uh, recidivism in the justice is over 50% of it comes from our, our violent offenders, mm-hmm. our, our extreme risk folks. They're going to be the ones that come through the system more. The bulk of police work and calls for service are from the marginalized population. Mm-hmm. Population. Those are two different factors, and it's not always the initial call of who you send. Mm-hmm. It's going to be what did you do from stopping them from calling the second time? 
what services did you get them that they haven't called? Because right. most of these people are calling multiple, multiple times. Mm -hmm. Some in the hundreds, some even more over mm -hmm. the course of time. Uh, so we have to look at it from both both angles, and we need to measure. Yeah, well, of course. And when when someone goes through the criminal justice system, they tend to come out feeling a bit like a criminal, right? You, you've got this stigma. You know, where you've just kind of been treated like a bad guy, so you kind of feel like a bad guy, you're ashamed of it, even if you know you were in the right. right. You know, like even if you got mistakenly identified or whatever, like you get cuffed, you feel bad and weird about it. So, so in my last job, here's a couple of facts here. We had, uh, I think we were up to about 50% that was on remand. So remand isn't yet sentenced. And, and all but 13% of them, I think, got out. And most of them got out between 1 and 14 days. Mm -hmm. So... If they get out between one and 14 days, why were they in there to start with? Mm -hmm. So then we were studying overtime in, in, in corrections and we hired a mathematician and economist, which I we actually have those now working for the police service, doctorates and masters. They're on the payroll, yeah. perfect. No, so so when you, when, you, when you think of that, they came back and said, well, you could change this shift here and you could do this. But they said, we think, we think by our assumptions here and the algorithm that we're looking at here, that if you let 11% of jail, uh, people out of jail, you might get a 5% reduction in crime. Mm -hmm let people out get a reduction in crime so that kind of told us right there it kind of made me scratch my head and say well look, we're running trade schools and universities and we're not running rehabilitation centers. yeah what what was the what were the factors well the it's just because factors, we're then? mixing low risk with high risk yeah and when you mix low risk offenders so those are less serious mm -hmm. with high risk which are very serious mm -hmm. they all become high risk 100 interesting okay there's sort of this like slippery right. slope thing. right so if you mix them yeah and then you had some provinces at the time, because I used to co-chair uh, uh, the Federal Provincial Territorial Deputies, you know, and this isn't blaming, and it's, it, that, that's not the point, but, you know, we still had that punitive system, and where folks were, or, or provinces were building weekend remand centers, like, for instance, spent $100 million on a weekend remand center, so, you know, and a lot of that's impaired driving, and whatever it was, but we got to think about that from a human perspective. That means they're safe to be in the community Monday to Friday, but Lord help us on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, watch out. Like, so, so I think these are some of the things that have evolved over right. time that there are better solutions, you know, uh, and it's to use the evidence and use the right approach to, to try to reduce the demand of services. And mm -hmm. I mean, if, if we all had the same goal to, to, to work ourselves out of work and if that's what we paid for, mm -hmm. we probably would be in a lot better position uh, in the human services than... You know, just give me more people and give me more uh, buildings, and 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 we'll get there faster. Well, that's never worked. Mm -hmm. we, we that was our biggest benchmark for EPS. We had eight key factors that came in years ago. What our benchmark was is as long as we got there in seven minutes uh, or less than seven minutes, and we measured that, that you know it would be good. Well, we that had no impact on crime. Right. I mean. First of all, if it's serious, if you're not there in the first minute or first two minutes, mm -hmm. it's probably too late. And then yeah. we're measuring average times and want to be the safest city in Canada. Mm -hmm. You don't measure average to be the best. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of these things now that analytics give us the opportunity to change. And, you know, if you think of it, you're pretty familiar with the sport environment, hockey environment. And uh, one of the conferences I spoke on a few years back in, in Toronto on Bay Street was with Billy Bean. Uh, oh money, yeah, Moneyball. Moneyball. Yeah, and, and uh, so he was speaking on how you know we brought analytics to baseball, and his analogy was we paid for a whole lot of things that had no impact on the game. Yeah, and I spoke on the social issues <laughs> and the government how we pay for a lot of things that have no impact yeah. on the results. 
So I spoke on the social side, he spoke on that, and, and then we chatted, and it was so... So much synergy there. So much synergy, yeah. yeah. So what you're telling me is you want me to do a documentary on you putting statistics into the police department. <laughs> I don't know about that. And how great it'll be. It's not just policing, Lee. That's the thing. And we'll, go win, we'll yeah. go win all the awards. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where some of the future's going. I mean, you know, uh, you know, some of the algorithms, the AI. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I came here is we have the third leading world university on AI. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have yet to find anybody with a partnership with them. Like, yeah. Like that so I mean to know better is to do better right so uh, we're we've got a partnership with them now we're working on a bunch of different things and uh, we're starting to we built a community solutions accelerator yeah I wanted to ask you a bunch yeah. of things on that yeah so I think the the, the, the opportunities here are endless yeah so how did uh, what's the backstory behind the community solutions accelerator well it's trying to basically an evolution trying to figure out how you do things quicker mm -hmm. and how do you uh, if you look at an ecosystem for change and take a financial model, you, you've got a problem, whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you need to, to define the problem? You need data, right? So, so data is in the center of any service, so access to data. And then what do you need? Well, to make it successful, you need co-design. So co-design, co-measurement, co-evaluation up front between public, private, and philanthropy. So what that does is give you the best of all worlds to actually look at the problem in a different way. Mm -hmm. Then if you're doing a financial transaction, you need something more deal flow, somebody to broker the deal, somebody to bring an immune system if you're taking RMD, reduce you know uh, your risk, uh, and to take it to the service providers. Then what do you need? You need a bank or a independent bank where it could be so much uh, money that could be on innovation, could be on pay for success, uh, uh, could be on microloans, uh, tax rates, tax incentives, uh, there's all different kind of things and then you need the service providers mm -hmm. so you you take the problem what does the data say what can you design how are you going to measure how are you can evaluate take it to the to the deal flow you take it to the providers and they're going to be forced to merge and amalgamate like the family farm and then you go to the bank how you're going to fund it and then you prove your R&D and then you sell your second product mm -hmm. and the second product in this case is you need to do your R&D outside of government and give them the ability to do R&Ds so uh, this, the accelerator is that we took problems that are being plaguing uh, in our community and, and from a policing perspective, worked with our foundation, found some key partners that are willing to invest in each other. Nobody gets anything. We've got our, you know, it's, it's, there's no commitment. It's just, it's just things that say we've got a stake in our communities to make our communities better. Right. Let's do this. So they did a liquor store challenge. I think we got 700 submissions mm -hmm. funded by the private sector, no cost to the taxpayer. Yep. We get a benefit. We provide some of the data needed in relation to how we do that. Mm -hmm. And they come up and, you know, the foundation owns the product. And mm -hmm. now we're looking at a mental health app. Now we're looking at a human-centered potential design, one with our vulnerable community, our homeless shelter, or our homeless community with a couple of our not-for-profits. Mm -hmm. it, it just gives you the ability to do innovative design in real time uh, to actually find something to reduce your demand on your services. And... If we do it right through the foundation and through the business community, we can create business with it and create an, an economic opportunity as well. No benefit to the police service other than we actually gain the success of doing things faster. Right. So you, can we get into a specific example of Alcana? 
Yeah, right. For sure. So, so Alcana is a, a liquor distribution company that runs wine and beyond liquor right. depot, uh, Ace Liquor, and a cannabis distributor too, as well, right? Right. So they came to the community, uh, the CSA, let's call right. it, because that's easier. Did they come to the CSA, they knowing that it they, existed first? Right. So the foundation was there. Yeah. Uh, contact made by the foundation. <laughs> the partners were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was their own project. Uh, uh, the chair of the foundation who sits on that. Mm-hmm. They flushed out the details. We all had input on here's what we can provide to it. Uh, that had independent judges, some mm-hmm. of the business community. We had one representative, somebody had worked on this file for a long time. Yeah. And they're actually now into the final stages of judging who the winners are in relation to that. And that's pretty cool. Just that's seeing, exciting. Just seeing some of the ideas that yeah. came out when we turned some of our bright minds. Mm-hmm. And it had access to the world. Mm-hmm. So they were world submissions. And some of the submissions... Some of our best submissions come right in our own backyard, I think. For so, sure. so we'll we'll see where it goes. I, I uh, we don't get the final report to the panel and the decision makers get it, and then yeah. we get what comes out of that. But here's an opportunity to change the approach. What do you do out of this? What is the success? Success is the ability for somebody to scale an idea and mm-hmm. a business. What is it for potentially Alcana? Well, they'd speak to that better than I do, but safer employee environment, safer. less theft. Yeah. What does it mean for police? Mm-hmm. Less calls for service, you yeah. know, better, safer environment, knowing that, you know, there's a way that we can actually get there quicker, et cetera, that yeah. if somebody is in, je- or in, in danger. So it's, it's a real win all the way around. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It was done in months, not years. We didn't yeah. study something. You know, it's kind of like I use the Indian wisdom when you're, yeah, when you're uh, riding a dead horse, don't form a committee how to better study how to ride dead horses. Just dismount, <laughs> dismount find a new horse. <laughs> I would, yeah, I definitely couldn't get away with saying that, but that was a good one. Um, I know there are certain objections from social activists about the use of specific big data um, when it comes to this type of deployment. Um, what are the arguments for and against it? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you need to understand most of this data, uh, especially in this environment, it's all de-identified. You can get 85, 90% of it through FOIP. Right. I mean, having lived in this world and having it underneath my ministry before and, you know, uh, my ADM leading part of the change to right data magic, matching legislation, mm-hmm. not all data is the same. And I think we, we also have to start to figure that as well. <clears throat> I mean, de-identify. I co-chaired uh, uh, the CCGS at StatsCan for about five years, so uh, myself and uh, the senior uh, director from StatsCan, so as the deputy minister, so they have this, uh, there's a big difference between de-identified and when you're actually identifying, you know, the personal identification th- uh, issues, and mm-hmm. uh, so that's first and foremost, and I think what we're missing here is everybody looks at potentially data for bad, but nobody's actually looking at data for good. Right. And, you know, if, you, if you're doing it in a foundation, you're not, you're not using it to go make arrests, you're actually looking at stopping the offense from happening. Right. And, and you know, having the foundation as kind of the, the main point on that kind of gives mm-hmm. you that buffer and keeps it arm's length for police. And, you know, if we can help facilitate some of that stuff to get it out the door mm-hmm. and, and a safer environment for citizens, I mean, we're in. So it's less about identifying the bad guys quicker and more about disincentivizing the bad guys to create to, to take, take the on environment that away. The first I mean, it's it's like impaired driving. We 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 struggled with that for years, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I always 
I always broke this down when I spoke about this, and I, I have a chance to speak about this all over the world, is, I mean, if you really look at impaired driving, there's three variables, right? Mm -hmm. There's a person, the driver, mm -hmm. there's, there's the variable, the alcohol, the drug, and there's the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so what do we always do? We educate the person. Mm -hmm. We have all these ads, educate the person, don't drink and drive. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we force, focus on enforcement. So we toughen the loss. Mm -hmm. We really focus on the variable. Let's criminalize it, let's do this. And at the end of the day, that has limited success, but it has more success when you uh, look at some of the BC model administrative sanctions, you have real-time consequences, usually take the vehicle. Yeah. But the technology exists today to disable the vehicle. For sure. You could do it tomorrow. Yeah. Probably save 40, 50 cents on each tax dollar in our insurance. Yeah. But that's just got to have the political will and leadership to, to make that decision. And you got to get the automakers yeah. on the board and raise that. So yeah. it's just looking at the problems differently. Yeah. It doesn't mean we'll ever get to that one, mm -hmm. but we could stop that one by 80% tomorrow. Yeah. We, have this, we have this weird holdup on our personal freedoms. And I get that it's very important in some realms, but like two sides of any argument, the, the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle. That's right? exactly right. So I, you know, that, that's one that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so and that's usually held by oversight mm -hmm. and governance. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can do that through the right oversight and governance, uh, you know, in relation to the privacy components, mm -hmm. that goes a long way. I've yet to see a problem, uh, and I've had many discussions with many different uh, privacy commissioners across this country, probably most of them actually. Uh, I've never yet heard one of them say that, um, you know, when somebody's in, uh, safety's in jeopardy or the community safety's in jeopardy that you shouldn't share information. I think they'd all tell you you should, mm -hmm. and you should do it now. Yeah. But it gets lost in the in the transaction at the, at the middle level mm -hmm. where people are fearing to lose their job if they, they make a mistake. Right. And, and that's where it gets lost. It's, yeah. it's not the privacy commissioners. I mean, you know, privacy was meant how to share information. It wasn't meant how not to share. Right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, back to back to the privacy thing and the big data, like there seems a problem if, if there's a fundamental distrust of the institutions, then of course they're going to be looking at what bad could you do with this versus what good could you do with Correct. this, right? which is why if you got some governance and some oversight yeah. and, you know, a bit of independence in there to, to making sure that you're, you know, it's got checks and balances and, and some parts of that are played by the privacy commissioners. But, you know, I think we have to realize that, uh, Safety is number one. Mm -hmm. Privacy is number two. Mm -hmm. Most of those go hand in hand. It's not a, it's not, excuse me, a one or the other. But uh, uh, you know, I would rather much if I had the ability to share uh, some information with you that's going to save our, our, our this person's life right now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to share the information. It's common sense, right? <laughs> like, well, let's not get hung up in the legalese no, of it. No, but truly, it's it, truly, it is in a lot of ways. Right? Yeah, and I mean. You know, as you know, and you're you're way more apt to, to, than I will be. Is most people put all this information out in the public domain anyway? Anyway, right? Like I said uh, earlier to someone that was here, it's I'll gladly give up a little bit of my private information so that Google Maps will make my life a hundred x better or easier or more right. efficient, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. So I mean, that that's the piece, and and what's what's lost in this is. You know, with social media, which I, I think has a really strong presence in, in, in dealing with things. But, you know, if you look at the negativity on social media and, you know, it's something we have to consider here at the police services. I, I just don't have a whole lot of time for somebody that doesn't put a name to something. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we got the bots out there that are trolling around. It's, you know, it's pretty easy to be brave when you are got some weird name that 
isn't a name. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that dysfunction is created in that environment, mm -hmm. and, and yet we let that happen. Yeah, it's a screen, this anonymity, this sort of like disconnection between human interaction. Like I said to you, the reason I do this podcast in person is because if I, as Shane, fundamentally disagreed with everything that you do here, Chief McPhee, I would still be ultra polite to you in front of this microphone, <laughs> face to face. And that's good. But if I'm a keyboard warrior with a, with a fake account, I'm going to just let loose and right. I'm not going to think twice about what I say, right? That's that's 100% exactly what it is. And you know, and, and we don't, you talk about governance on that, there is none. Mm -hmm. There is none. No. Yet, yet we want to govern. Now they're fact checking, like, right? right? They're yeah. fact checking, but they've got that wrong too. Like, well, I mean, we don't need to get in that debate because we know that that's not very deep. But yeah, it is fact checking. <laughs> yeah, uh, I want to circle back to sort of realities of policing as well, and I'll start with a, a sport analogy because I know you, I know you appreciate a good sport analogy. But I w once heard, and I forget where I heard this, but good policing is is like a good defense in team sports, right? You don't really notice it when it's going well. <laughs> you know that's that's exactly right. right? Yeah. But we also know that championships are won with a with a good defense. Absolutely. You know, um, and good goaltending. <laughs> good goaltending. <laughs> so so I mean that's just it, right? It's back to the same thing as build build the relationships with the community. So mm -hmm. when you do have something that goes wrong, you have the relationships to at least start the conversation. Yeah. What's what's missing here right now is. Um, we as, as you know as well let's take Edmonton we as a city police included we send our vulnerable communities so many mixed messages mm -hmm. I mean you know if you look at how much uh, is dumped into here in relation to money and services and and where a lot of it uh, isn't connected for the most part there's very very little oversight I mean I think actually police are one of the the few that has independent oversight if not the only and, and that doesn't mean we're perfect either. I want to be very clear about that. But our board in, 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 in the uh, police commission, you know, is very diverse. It represents most of our communities. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's well rounded, well educated, well thought out, well experienced. Uh, and that's, that's our buffer to the community. And, mm -hmm. and they hold us accountable. And I'm not sure people really realize just what that is. It's not an elected body, it's, it's, it's appointed by an elected body mm -hmm. through it appoints. So council appoints them. And they're real good, and and they ask tough questions, and they demand change. As a matter of fact, they hired me to bring change. Yeah, that was part of the mandate, and it was you know, so a lot of what we're seeing is what I was actually here to do. Now it's got a little bit sidetracked. Mm -hmm. First COVID, now now George Floyd, but it doesn't change us away from the mission. We know what we're going to do, but we also can't get a. Uh, uh, you know, there's going to be problems as we go. There's going to be police that are disciplined. There's going to be disciplined cases, and and. And we're diligent about that, and, and we need to make sure diligent. And we've got lots of critics out there, uh, and, and we should have critics, mm -hmm. but we need to deal with that. But to your point is, if they're not existing and there's none, you would almost wonder what's wrong. Right, of course. So so we can't lose sight of the fact that there is a process. Mm -hmm. uh, is it perfect? Oh, could it be better? Yes. Are we going to make it better? Well, hopefully that's what the Police Act will bring us. But you're, you're exactly right. Is... Uh, to win a championship, you need to be you need to be operating all environments. So if you put that in a policing perspective, you know we need to make sure that <clears throat> we're as relentless and diligent on our organized crime. Those people that are disrupting our communities, you know, shooting each other, breaking in, and you know, and, and creating all kinds of damage. Mm -hmm. We need to be equally relentless with 
you know, the vulnerable population and in the middle, we need to build the relationships with community that can serve on both sides of this equation. And, uh, and, and that's the point. It's not one or the other. It's all at the same time. And I always say is what I've noticed in policing, uh, probably the most biggest changes <clears throat> I was told early on when I was first a police chief in PA, if you just arrest 10% of the people, you get rid of your crime. Well, we tried that. didn't work. Just get more people. <laughs> Which 10%. Just, right. That's right. So, so we're, we're moving from what some would call hard on crime, which is arrest and incarcerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would call soft on crime, hugs and second chances, <laughs> to let's be smart on community safety and well-being, yeah. which is you got to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the balance piece and that's where EPS is headed and uh, our Vision 2020 will get us there. Uh, you know, we're going to have some bumps in the road and this has showed us that we're exposed in some areas that we have to, to work on. But uh, ultimately, that's the only path is, is to be smart on community safety and well-being. And the only way that you're successful in community safety and well-being is through partnerships, data-driven, collective outcomes, and with a focus on local. Now, I heard that in terms of police accountability in the U.S., actually, majority of the complaints against particular officers come from fellow officers. Is that mirrored here in Edmonton? No. I mean, we do get some yeah. and, you know, the circumstances and they're obviously dealt with it as well, but it's, it's a small minority. And really the use of force complaints that we actually get, I think, uh, they're, they're, well, they are, they're really small. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our highest one right now, if I'm, I'm remembering correctly, is more of our, our, um, our customer service. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. and, and they're not big either. Yeah. Like it's a small portion. Well, four, you don't want to return customers. So. Well, <laughs> no, but, but at the same time, we want to be friendly yeah, of and, course, and fair, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, uh, but if you want to, uh, I think we had 43,000, close to 43,000 arrests in, in Edmonton, uh, was it 18 or 19? Mm-hmm. And I think it's roughly 4.5 or 14, 4.9% of all those arrests mm-hmm. had any kind of physical confrontation. Right. So That's when, a low amount. That's a right? low amount. And that, that could mean from... Uh, you know, pushing somebody to the ground mm-hmm. to, or grabbing them and restraining them mm-hmm. to all out fight or worse. Yeah. Uh, but that's a small amount when you actually see it. So I think it's pretty important uh, to do that. And everybody talks about, you know, the UK model, uh, you know, some of them not having guns. And of course, I've been over there lots too. Mm-hmm is their use of force complaints are way higher than ours. Right. Yeah, way higher than ours. Well, they say a well-armed society is a polite one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's the saying. And I'm not like yeah, a gun yeah. advocate <laughs> no, or necessarily uh, not a gun advocate. Yeah. But um, when it comes, and I think this might be a problem too, and you can, I'm sure, speak to it. When it comes to interacting with the police, like I don't think people really realize they're so focused on their rights as citizens, but with those rights come responsibility. And what is your responsibility to the officer who is hired to protect everyone's safety? Like, how do you deal, how are you supposed to deal with an officer? And like, you know, you see people are like resisting. Like I would never even think of resisting because A, the guy's got a gun. B, like he probably doesn't, if I am innocent, he probably doesn't know it. He probably has to call someone, he's looking for someone like me or you got a complaint about something in the neighborhood and I'm the one he finds. I don't know what kind of day he's had. I don't know if he's just dealt with a domestic disturbance earlier in the day and he got attacked by both the the man and the wife there. Like, I I don't know what's going on in this officer's life and he doesn't know anything about me. So the thought of resisting against a guy with a gun and a taser and cuffs and a badge, to me doesn't seem like a good idea. But yet, when you you see all these videos coming out, you see people resisting, you see people running. It's like, 
Like, what in someone's mind would compel them to do that? Well, that's an interesting comment, and it's, it's a fair comment you make. And I learned one thing in this process recently by sitting down with an individual um, that in no one his eyes had a bad experience. And um, in our immigrant communities, which, you know, are, are large now, uh, and this was the words that he used, you know, I'm used to the police in my home country coming and beating us and mm. taking away the kids yeah. and, and or taking away my brother or taking away my sister. And, you know, we've got a lot of immigrant families that, you know, have had some form of trauma uh, that have uh, immigrated here and, and rightfully so. And that's a strength. But we probably don't do a good enough job. And we spoke about this after the fact is what are we doing as a society at the basic level to explain the difference between Canadian policing or Canadian human services right. to these individuals to help them understand, help them understand what their rights are. So I think that was a takeaway that things that we could actually do better because if, you're, if your trauma and your, and your premise point is, is the police are coming, you know, do whatever you can to get away because it isn't going to end well, and that's mm-hmm. your only belief, uh, and you live with that and you, your first experience is bad, most of them are going to be bad. Traumatizing, right? right? You, people right. get in one car accident, they can't drive for the rest of their right, life. Imagine right, this, right, right. where like that was an accident, this someone did on purpose. Right, so I think there's I think there's a teaching moment and a learning experience there to work with our communities on that. That's not every case because, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at one of the stats that got thrown out um, while we were in this public hearing was the number of people shot uh, and killed or, or killed at the hands of the police. and. There was, I think there was 23 of them referred to the, there was zero black. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think, four First Nations or four. Was this Canadian numbers? Or yeah, no, these are Edmonton, Edmonton numbers. Edmonton. Okay. And, uh, and the majority of them are Caucasian. Yeah. So, but, you know, and and large part of that is, is everybody's got different experiences. But to your point is uh, most people that we're coming to is because we're called there yeah. and something bad has happened in a lot of cases and mm-hmm. you're making uh, you know some pretty quick decisions so uh, you know we're never going to take out the confrontation and policing at uh, 100% no. it's just not going to happen yeah. where i think we back to where we were focusing this is is you know the whole mental health component the whole vulnerable population component with that just keeps moving around in our city I think there's some different approaches and some better approaches and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of services being spent and uh, on, on, on these folks and I'm not sure that we're collectively please include in getting the outcomes we need uh, to get people healthier and, mm-hmm. and, and out of the system so we've danced around this particular statement for a while now defund the police yeah. What does it mean to you? What are the misconceptions about it? What was your initial reaction? Well, I mean, it? first of all, defund. I, to me, I don't think it makes any sense because I don't think it's realistic. But to me, the words that we have been using here that I think say a lot of the same thing is demand reduction. Mm-hmm. So if, if like my that. goal as a chief of police is to, to work myself out of a job, the only way that I can actually do that is reduce the number of calls for service and the demand on the police. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, there's only two things that matter. You reduce intake. Police control 100% of the intake in the justice system, so we gotta reduce the number of charges and the intake into the justice system, and then you need to make sure that every off-ramp works. 
and those off ramps in large part are going to be with partnerships and that's the off ramps to making sure you have metrics you know not going to the same calls over and over mm -hmm. we've set that structure in place and i think if you get from a demand reduction and you focus on getting 20 percent of the demand out of the system mm -hmm. you actually start to be able to focus that uh, money on other things but if you're going to talk about defund or divest in a larger way you got to look at the system mm -hmm. and i can tell you with a fair degree of certainty and this would be another project if you ever want to dig into and the city just opened the through the motion which was what I thought a very good motion is look at all the money that's being poured into here mm -hmm. and then look at the outcomes and I would pretty much tell you that uh, in the Edmonton area the police are going to be a small portion of the budget we're there because we're that people that can't say no 24-7 services mm -hmm. uh, but the money going into this system is 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 large. It, it's large, uh, and I think there's a chance now to, if you're really going to look at defund, change that language to reinvest. So one of the things I said is, we're we're getting hit with 11 million dollar budget uh, reduction, which you know I think is fair with COVID because we were looking at that through the commission anyway. Mm -hmm. But it's also now being put into a area where it's going to stand up a community safety well-being uh, uh, advisory council, I think it is, or whatever it's called, uh, to look at how to invest that money to reduce the need of police service. My challenge, or my my uh, challenge back to other people, well, if the police are putting in 11 million, you know, it should be nice if some other services came through with 11 mm -hmm. million that have bigger budgets than we do. And actually say, what can we actually collectively use that money to drive change for? Right. Then you have defund, yeah, because you have real reduction of demand, and so uh, and, and it's reducing demand is, is is truly the language that uh, will actually get you to outcomes. Uh, defund is, or or better yet, shift is another one. Yeah. You know, defund out of one to move it to the other isn't going to change anything. Mm -hmm. All those all those services exist today, mm -hmm. all of them. Doing more of the same isn't going to change it. Right. Yeah, you need the, the fundamental shift in, in strategy and culture, like you said earlier. But <clears throat> I think there's a lot of nuance missed in, like, the title, defund the police. Because some people are saying it meaning, meaning uh, you know, like, reduce their budget, demilitarize them, like, reduce the presence, which, like, there's a case to be made that none of that is a good idea. And then there's the abolish the police, like yeah. they did in Minneapolis. And, and there's, there's just too much wrapped up into these particular terms, right? And I think a lot of people get get confused in that, and and it, it leads to anger, and it leads to disagreements, and no one is really sitting down to have the conversation about well, it. Well, it's it's weird that you say that abolish the police, yet they don't know how to do it, and, and it won't they won't be able to do it. I mean, yeah. they've had how many homicides in the last little while, and I yeah. mean, you know, then there's then <coughs> you mentioned earlier on is Seattle took a bit of a different approach, and they created that zone. I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, geez, I just yeah. just listening about this, yeah. um, and for a large part. That autonomous zone yeah, yeah yeah that's it and it quickly became <laughs> the shootings just went through the roof what are you expecting the, common sense the shootings <laughs> went through the roof they were killing people yeah. they're killing each other yeah and now somebody made the rash decision well maybe we should rethink this and remove them out mm -hmm. so i think you got to be careful you think that uh all you need to do is take a presence away and everything gets better yeah you don't fix a, a, a health response by just moving out and saying, let them do it themselves. We know from, from overseas that when you remove any type of power, even if it's a dictator, it creates a void. Right. And who's going to fill that, right? Well, you saw it through organized crime. You yeah. see it through gangs. You People are opportunists. That's right. They're going to see that opportunity. Out, hey. Somebody comes in. Yeah. 
I don't know if you saw, but uh, one of the one of the I don't forget if she was a city councilor or like the person running city council in Minneapolis. She got asked by a reporter after they announced that they're abolishing the police there. Um, well, who do I call if my house gets broken into in the middle of the night and and I'm alone and I'm scared? Who do I call? And she and the, the response from the city rep was. The fact that you asked that question just shows what a privileged point of view you have. <laughs> and I she got roasted for I, that. I, like, I, you can't I, say that. I, I didn't see that. No, it's just like she, she yeah. rolled it back. But it's like yeah. we, have, we have shifted the goalposts on yeah. these conversations. Yeah. We have taken this thing so far around to the wrong side that were things that seem so obvious. Like, if you remove police, criminals will run rampant. That, that statement is now not even looked at with any validity because you know police are identified as the problem through misrepresentation in social media, through extreme examples that aren't representative of the, of the reality. There's just so many issues that are going on with that. Right, and I mean, you also <laughs> gotta remember a lot of our, like if you look at the city of Edmonton right now, a lot of the problems right now that we're seeing are in the domain or, or the space that meth has created. And meth is one of the most unpredictable drugs that has ever seen because it makes normal people do not normal things right and violent things stay awake from days mm -hmm. so even people that you might think were normal are hurting people in a lot of cases most of our high-speed chases are meth related right and that's a reality right. and you know some of those are extremely dangerous and, and a lot of the things that we're seeing so to think that that's just gonna go away by say you're gonna move the police out and <laughs> and you know move more you know and i i, I don't want to say use it a bad example social workers because i know a lot of my know a lot of mental health workers and we've had those conversations and they don't want to go to these calls alone the ones that i've talked to i mean but really if you send a team approach and put the right lead mm -hmm. in you might be on to something because yeah. if it's not safe first who's going to go we took over five thousand calls to assist other agencies last yeah year. Right, because you people feel safe around the police for the most part, and police are the best people to deal with these violent situations. One thing I was going to ask you, like, um, I just lost my place. Oh yeah, there's, <clears throat> there, like you just said, there's a push for certain calls of nature, like homelessness, mental health, addiction, to be reassigned to to unarmed social workers. Right, they're saying, oh, if if the person responding is unarmed, this situation yeah. won't turn violent. It's like, well. How do you know it's not going to turn violent? Right. What percentage of those those calls typically do turn violent? Yeah. And just because a police member has a gun, why do you assume it's going to turn violent because he's there with a gun, right? Yeah. Like, no, no, and, and and that's that's the whole point. Is I mean, some of our most biggest successes is our police and crisis team, police and mental health workers, and the police car taking mm -hmm. the call together. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, when they make an assessment, they're getting people connected, services quicker getting the right people into the justice system but most importantly the right people into the health system mm -hmm. uh so i mean those are the team approaches i i you know i've uh, as a police officer seen uh, uh many situations where a social worker had to go in and try to get some kids out of a home mm -hmm. and it went real bad right yeah and who did they call it's the police yeah. and i mean so most of those got into a spot where we went together they'd mm -hmm. ask for assistance to go together yeah. so a lot of this happens now uh, there's uh, uh, I think there's some things that we could screen out in a, in a in a first call for service in a dispatch environment. You know, using some some analytics and potentially some uh, professionals, whether mental health, right in that dispatch center, mm -hmm. you can screen out. But a lot of these things are going to boil down to a multidisciplinary approach, which mm -hmm. means some are going to have to work 24/7. 
but there's enough money in the system to shift that without mm-hmm. having to defund one to the other. You, you got to put them together in time. If you're successful, mm-hmm. you might need less of both. Right. And I, I, you know, I think I read that you got asked like, okay, what's going to actually happen if we lose that $11 million? Well, you said like, something like 92% of the budget is, is on salaries, right? Yeah. So then it's a, it's a first in first out hiring policy. Yeah. And you guys have made such a big push in recent years to hire diverse members. So if you really are going to define and we have to fire police officers, you're going to fire all those diverse officers we just hired. Well, and, and that's, that was lost in the shuffle. People are saying that, you know, you're just going to cut that and you're going to cut your diversity. That's not the case. You mentioned, and that was when they were talking 75 million, 11 right. million. We're pretty confident that we can do that without uh, disrupting jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our that's our goal. So that's why we thought it was a number that at least gives enough money to start doing something differently. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, after COVID, I mean, everybody else in the community is hurting too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's we're not exempt from that, right? Uh, but if you get into a 75 million, like the, the initial conversations were, it's, that's collective bargaining. And collective bargaining, as you said, is, you know, uh, last hired first out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. There, there's rules around that. Now, that's first and foremost what you want to protect against. You yeah. don't want that to, because then to your point is, if you go too far and it gets too extreme, you want to do all the good you've done. Yeah. And then you're starting back again five, 10 years. So we're, we're on a path to change. Mm-hmm. Change doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no magic bullet where you can say that, you know, we're gonna disband, uh, disband the police service and we're gonna bring in another 1,800 people from somewhere else and then we're better. Mm-hmm. That ain't gonna work. We do a lot of things really well. EPS is very good. That said, we got a lot of work to do in some areas and, and we're gonna work on that. Uh, but yeah, that, that part is, uh, is problematic. And you know, back to your point earlier is people want to attack it on social media because that's what they see and that's their take on it rather mm-hmm. than sitting down like you and I are across from each other. Yeah. You understood it. And you pick that up on your own where some people made their own story out of it. Right. Um, just in terms of social media, I want to talk about like the human element of policing, right? Like yeah. we, we see these bad events happen, uh, but rarely do we see the impact on the officers involved yeah. in that bad events. And, you know, I'm not talking about unjustified murders of people yeah. like George Floyd's killers, but I'm talking about, you know, tricky situations in which the officer had to make a call and his call look got looked at and it was the right call but he's left bearing the brunt of the fact that he just ended someone's life or seriously yeah. hurt someone yeah i mean those those are those are uh career uh, life long right mm-hmm. you don't you don't forget that you just you know you we have pretty good programs in place to help people uh deal with it mm-hmm. and, and to get through it we spent a lot of time. We have, you know, psychologists on staff. We have psychologists access. We have a reintegration program, getting them back to work. We just ran, and in our last officer shooting, one of the things, uh, you know, when, uh, when we lost uh, Dan Whittle and I had a chance to meet his family, one of the first things we did is we ran a restorative justice process to repair what that did to our police service, mm-hmm. and it wasn't good. It was, it was. There was a lot of tears, a lot of emotions, a lot of breakdowns. Uh, but it was a good point to at least get to a point where we could start to accept and, and mm-hmm. help us move on. And uh, I, as a result, I've established a pretty good relationship with uh, Dan's wife, Claire, and uh, his mom and dad, and uh, David and Denise, and, and the boys. And, you know, uh, those are things that we need to do. And those aren't, those aren't easy. Mm-hmm. And those have impact on, on, you, on your members. And, 
uh, just as it does in the reverse. So it's it's something that we take serious. It's something that nobody ever wants to do. That's not what you sign up for. Yeah. But to your point, it's one of those things that you have to protect uh, uh, yourself. You have to protect other officers, and you have to protect the community. And mm -hmm. uh, you're given some special privileges to do that, and uh, that's unfortunately a, a, a necessary part of the job. Um, so, do do you guys offer any any sort of uh, programs or any type of like counseling to to officers who are maybe you know having seeing their name and their profession drugged through the mud right now? Yeah. Like like how have you been reaching out, talking to your officers? Hey guys, this is a tough time right now, but like just stay the course, like keep being great. Yeah. What's so the communication? There's there? lots of internal videos by myself to the members and and others to the members. We have an EFAS program, mm -hmm. which is you know employee assistance program. We have a full unit in relation to that uh, reintegration piece. We have an early intervention program. You know, if somebody's showing up, let's just say that they've been involved in use of force a, a couple or three times, they show up and we'll, we'll meet with them. Or if they show up, you know, they've been driving too fast more than a couple times, mm -hmm. we, we meet with them. Or there's lots of trigger points. So we built a pretty good effective program. Uh, two of our folks that uh, were kind of the leads on this, they've been all over the world. I think they were just in New Zealand before COVID. Great place. Te te teach, teaching, and I've never been there, but it, uh, they were teaching our program. So we do have lots of that, but as you also said and noted, it takes a toll when you go out there. Like I had two, uh, <clears throat> two of our younger uh, female officers, uh, just while we were going through this, and, you know, sat down and I was leaving work one day and we just chatted. Mm. and. Uh, you know, you know, Chief, they hate us out there. And, you know, a week ago, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, you got to remember there's a lot of people that are angry right now. We'll get through this and just know it's not you, it's your uniform. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, you know, one was pretty broken up mm -hmm. and uh, one was a little bit lighter in humor, but that's the reality. They're, they're humans. Yeah, we're humans. And uh, to sit and be the brunt of, uh, of everything else and to say that, Policing alone has, has created all these problems. A, it's not fair, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and probably more importantly, it's just not right. Mm -hmm. I, I've been all over the world, and I've seen this. I, I haven't. I've been in policing, left policing, been in business. Uh, you know, seen this from the vulnerable communities, have relationships. You know, established partnerships with everything from you know chiefs, first nations, bands, good friends, most minority communities. Uh, uh, you know, I think it's pretty important that uh, the only way we're going to get through this is when we do it together. Yeah, and especially that's got to weigh heavy on people when they're out there putting their lives on the line to protect the same people that are then, you know, attacking them on social media. And it, and it, and you're, it's such a backwards position that we're in. Then if you even come out and say blue lives matter, you're, you're ripped apart. Because then all of a sudden you're against Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And it's just like I know like one of my best friends from high school used to sit in the basement, and watch Bad Boys 2 and talk about being cops one day. Yeah. He actually went out and did it. And he's now an oh, eight-year really? eight RCMP yeah. member. Yeah, cool. um, but I know he went into it for all the right reasons. And I know he continual, continually does it yeah. for the right reasons. Yeah. And I know there's, as Dave Chappelle says, there's some bad apples out there, whoever. <laughs> but it's like... Yeah, but there's mostly good people. Well, and that's the same. It's just like society, right? It's mostly good people. Yeah. And I think you, the other thing that gets lost is, uh, you know you know what a, a good cop hates most? Criminal? A, a bad cop. Oh, right. I should have known that from the cop shows I used you to know, watch. There you go. No, but, but that's true, right? <laughs> there's got to be some self-policing too, right? It's 100%. like, guys, like, 
like I'm not trying to rat on you, right. but if you act no, in a that's, way that's going to make us all look bad, I don't want that on me. That's part of the training, me. the yeah. escalation. You know, if you go to a scene and you got it under control and mm -hmm. everybody's emotions are jacked and there's four of you there, mm -hmm. somebody's got to be pulling, you know, the one back and say, I've got this, yeah. you know, and those are all things. That that's you, a training thing, that's, right? That's, that's that comes exactly with experience. Right. So there's right. a very strong case to be made that there needs to be more funding going in for better training. Well, and and we're, we're doing that and we're doing more of it and we're continuing to do that. But... It's not a perfect science. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to make some mistakes, and there's going to be any kind when you have an organization of 26, 2,700 people, uh, you're going to have some people that uh, probably are going in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But that's uh, the job of the chief and, and 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 the leadership to kind of try to get that back in tow or mm -hmm. in line. And if somebody chooses that they don't want to be a police officer because they see it differently, that's okay too. Some. Mm -hmm some you know will leave the job and that's that's unfortunately or fortunately part of uh, part of the reality of uh, running a large uh, group or large staff absolutely you don't want people who don't want to be there right at the end of the day uh, I know we only got a few more minutes so just got a couple of general questions sure. to, to hammer off we focus yeah. on a number of really important topics yeah. hopefully shed some light on some complicated nuanced yeah. issues all that like um, but I think it's worthwhile to bring this back to discussion about some key takeaways so um, what do you say when someone asks you what Edmonton does best in terms of policing? What are your, what's your two sentence thing? I think what Edmonton uh, does best is uh, we're moving in an environment which is community safety and well-being to balance policing. And balance means finding the right approach to the marginalized community and those that are struggling with the right approach to those serious criminals and crime. And that balance means that there's going to be different solutions for both of them, but they're equally as important. Mm -hmm. We can't no longer just focus on, you know, the bad criminals because mm -hmm. we have those. And there's lots of them here. Let's let's make no mistake of that. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to forget about them while we deal with this. We're going to do it both at the same time. We're going to put the balance in, and we're going to focus on community safety and well-being, which just means we're going to do both at the same time and we're going to be relentless. And I said that actually at my swearing-in ceremony, and that mm -hmm. hasn't changed today. Yeah. Uh, how can we continue to bring people together in a safer and more vibrant community? I, well, I think uh, you know, I think that's you know we can facilitate a lot of that not only with our minority communities, but you know a large part of this is what we've really resonated here since I've been here, and we're looking at maybe looking at different approach for this too is our business community. You know, our business community, their voices are not heard right now, and they, they you know a large part keep this city flowing, the small mm -hmm. business and. Uh, a lot of them want more police presence because their their business are getting damaged. So a lot with zero recognition too. I know 100%. a lot of those people in that community they don't ask for any recognition. They give back. Yeah. They, they do what they want. So so we're gonna try to obviously build a um, a different approach, kind of uh, a chief's council, uh, different uh, diversities on that council mm -hmm. to some ad advisory capacity, but not again divided by race. Here's here's the group and will be representative and then how we do implementation will be more race so, so change the approach a little bit and and we're really going to focus on the, on the community engagement piece and just exactly how we can do you know it's it's a tough time with covid right now but mm -hmm. uh, uh, those relationships and getting under community and right from the accelerator everything else are, are the critical component to success yeah well it's inspiring to hear that stuff and last and probably what most people are are wondering uh, from you is who is your favorite current and past Edmonton Oiler? Wow, it's a tough one. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good ones, and I, I grew up with a lot of them. And uh, 
you know, uh, you go back to the championship teams, they were they were pretty good. And, you know, Gretzky got a lot of the accolades, but then you, you look at the, the people behind the scenes, the Messiers, and, you know, he got his accolades too. And just what they had as a team, I think, you know, and then the defense, the, back to your point, the, the real contributors there were the defense and the goalies that actually won, the, won that. And then, of course, nowadays, uh, they're cut some stars, and of course, I was the president of PA when we brought Settle in. Yeah, so, thought so. he'd be the easy answer for current, <laughs> but you're giving me so, the political so, answer so here. We're recognizing so, everyone. So, so uh, you know, I think there's a. There's, but but where I was actually going with this is, if we can transpire that old mindset into the new uh, team and the new approach, uh, there's some real good things on the horizon here yeah. and, I, and I think it's I, I, I finally as somebody that's followed the us for a lot of year a lot of years I'm starting to see that getting closer together and that's pretty exciting you, you don't want you want to temper your expectations you don't want another broken heart but it's hard not to right now yes right? that's right yeah. no they're there you can see it coming and of course, tip it another PA guy and uh, oh, good, yeah. good stuff. <laughs> he needs to grow the mustache back in the playoffs. So, 100%. so no, and uh, you know, and the, and the Oilers uh, uh, just just so what's said here to you been tremendous. Uh, the OEG has been tremendous partners with uh, the Edmonton Police Service, and it's something that we very much appreciate. So, hey, we're hoping that those playoffs happen, and uh, and we're hoping for some big things. But uh, you know, Leon and. Uh, Leon's pretty hard not for me to have a bit of a soft spot for on the team for sure. And uh, <laughs> guy could pass like a like a man when he was 16, and uh, and it hasn't changed. So. Yeah, and just an awesome guy. Too. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, Chief McPhee, I really appreciate this. I couldn't ask for a better guest to kind of get back off off or back on the horse well, after this. I appreciate it. I really this appreciate, great. appreciate what you're doing, and yeah. uh, thanks for having me. And uh, look forward to. Uh, uh, hearing more from you and uh, as, a, as somebody that's actually saw some of your works uh, you know we just want to give you kudos because you're doing a great job i appreciate it and the feelings being chill about you thank you very yep. much take care hey everyone thank you so much for listening quickly before you go if you enjoyed the podcast please don't be afraid to rate it and leave a comment on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and if you think the podcast is worthwhile and you want others to hear it, it would really mean the world to me if you could share it on your various social media platforms. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.